Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today, I'm really excited to have Chip Wilson on the show. Chip, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jess. I think we're going to have fun already, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we should have recorded the pre-call, too, as well. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think there's so many people that will think you're famous for uh, being the founder of, of Lululemon and just the absolute outsized results that you created there. But with me and my friends, as I alluded to earlier, you're famous for inventing the best snowboard brand to ever come out of Canada, uh, West Beach. Um, and so it's been, it's been fun to read your book and to hear how many of the lessons from West Beach set you up for everything else you've done. Um, I, what I kind of want to start with a little bit, though, today is um, I saw your $100 million gift. I took notes because uh, I, I couldn't pronounce this correctly. But um, can, you, can you talk about this issue that, that you've gone behind with the, the muscular issues? Um, trying to... Oh, yeah, sure. Fascio, scapulo, humeral, muscular dystrophy. Am I even close? Great. Another way of saying it is FSHD. Yeah. And yeah, it's a muscular dystrophy. So, uh, you know, a lot of people can, you know, end up in a wheelchair when they're nine years old. It can happen really fast, really slow. Um, I'm one of those really fortunate ones that happened over a slow amount of time. I was uh, actually training for the Ironman in Calgary when I was 28. And then at about the age of 31, I... Um, I went to the doctor. I just, I just had a bad back. I was hurting, and and um, and he looked. He had me stripped down, and he saw I had these massive legs and this kind of like skinny upper body. And so he tested me. So he said I have you know muscular dystrophy, and I ba basically went into denial for about thirty years on it. But um, you know, the bottom line is, even after a couple of years, I couldn't swim across the pool anymore because I'd lost all my triceps. But Long story short, I mean, it took a long time for me to get to about four years ago when I when I knew I was going to be in real trouble and uh, I could start to see, you know, my future life in a wheelchair and that type of thing. So fortunately, I mean, what a what a fortunate position to be in life to actually be able to do something about about a problem. And and so um, I'm a man of action. So I I set up a solve FSHD, which has a goal of solve of. Uh, creating the solve for muscular dystrophy by December 31st, 2027. Well, it's such great work. And I think one of the things that I admire about people like you so much is you've taken action, you've created the capabilities to then help people more than yourself. You know, like you've obviously are in a financial position to try and get all the best specialists and the people to help you. And yeah. to me, I, I don't know, I just admire that you know, you put a hundred million dollars into something that can help a lot of people besides just yourself. And, uh, it seems like just such great work you're doing. Yeah. You know, I think like so many things, um, it maybe it comes back to Ayn Rand type thing, but, um, it, it is a selfish thing. I mean, first off, I'm, I am doing it for myself. Um, but the reality of it is that, you know, maybe there's a 20% chance of me actually like solving this, but you know, everyone I'm working with, is, is got it's genetic and all their children have it. And so um, I can see where if I can figure this out, it may not even be solving the disease. It may actually be building muscle faster than it depletes. So if you think that through, um, most people die when they get older because they lose their balance, they fall, and then they end up in the hospital and die. You know, if we can build muscle for uh, people as they age, then this could actually extend lifespan by 10, 15 years. 
I think that's the real cool thing behind it. It's incredible. Uh, if people want to support it, find out more about it, what's the website or where, where are the best places? Um, it's called Saul, S-S-H-D. Um, and then actually, we don't even take money. I just, you know, because I didn't want to be that type of person. But there's um, FSHD Canada would be a good place. I think uh, the FSHD Society in the United States, these are places to donate. And um, it's actually surprising. Probably more people have it than they think. And, you know, you were you were talking about how you got into charity about, um, about you know, lost children and where they are. And... Um, and how to find the bottleneck for how to how to solve that. You know, really the solve for this is really getting phys ed teachers to look at young children. And it's always that you thought, oh, that's the uncoordinated kid, or that's the kid that doesn't run very fast, or, you know, that's the, the nerd type of thing. Well, in reality, a lot of these times that kid is starting off with muscular dystrophy, but hasn't been diagnosed. Wow. Well, great work you're doing there. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you guys yeah, are doing you. that. Um, Let's switch gears for a minute. Uh, our our regular listeners are, I'm sure, sick of hearing me talk about reading, you know, my 900 business and philosophy and marketing books. But I've got to tell you, everybody, I'm I'm on chapter six right now of uh, the story of Lululemon by founder Chip Wilson, and I've got to really compliment you on this book. Um, I, you know, I listen to maybe two to four books a week typically, and you start to get a formula, especially like if you're interested in business or entrepreneurship, there's a lot of similarities. And um, I am loving this book so much. Like one of my favorite books of all time is Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where he's he's like really giving it to you. Like this is not fluffy. It's not professorial. <laughs> he's like, it's like he's trying to do me the personal favor of like, let's get real. Entrepreneurship is a full contact sport, you know, Put on your big boy pants, Jess. Like, this is what you're up to. But but also, like, in a way that's trying to help me. It's not. He's not trying to make himself look impressive. He's not, um, he's not just pontificating. He's like, okay, here's what actually happened. Here's what I would never do again. Here's what I'm advising people. And I just love how you're like, you're not pulling any punches in this book. And it's just like, I've never had a book remind me more of the hard things about hard things. So that's a compliment for me. Well, it's, it's, thank you so much. It's, I think what I've learned in life is that everyone goes through the same things in one way or the other. And anyone who's kind of sugarcoating it is just faking it. And um, I think we're all just human beings. And this is, this is just what occurs as being a human being. I also really respect that you give it away for free. Uh, and that the audiobook people can listen to on SoundCloud and... Um, uh, so where is the best place for people to go? I was on the website today. Now I can't remember what the URL. Yeah, I'm on, uh, it's uh, chipwilson.com. Okay. They can get it. There. Um, but that's, you know, that's on a big format. If, you know, I'm, I know I'm a Kindle reader, so I can go on Kindle, but I pay for it. Or I go on uh, um, Amazon and, you know, do the audio type of thing. So, um, but as far as free goes, I know it's on my website. Yeah, yeah I bought the Audible just because I like the format, right? Um, yeah. So there's so many questions I have. Um, I think one of the things that's been the most fun about this show is seeing similarities and differences for, for all these different kinds of high achievers. Um, and everybody knows you fr from Lululemon, but can you talk about, you know, some of the unique things you did in the swimming world of Canada that people probably don't know? Well, I mean, um, 
think I was a really big swimmer. I mean, I was, I was you know, I was a six foot three and 220 pounds. I mean, I was like 70 pounds and five inches taller than most swimmers at that time. So, but I was a sprinter. And uh, so, so I was really good when I was young and then everything kind of moved to longer distances for the Montreal Olympics. So it kind of like took me out. But um, I think my, my first experience was, it was a quite a mediocre 10 year old. And I was at the, at a, you know, I was at a race and my dad came to the end of the pool and he said, Chip, let's do something that people don't really do. And this is in the era when people um, kind of like uh, always wanted to look good at the end. And this is kind of an analogy to life, actually. A lot of people like to look good. And, um, and he said, why don't you just like sprint right from the beginning, do all four lengths and sprint. And if you, you know, you, you drown, then I'll come and get you type of thing, you know, type of thing. And as a 10 year old being pretty impressionable about, you know, from what my dad said, I just went for it. And, uh, and my time dropped like eight seconds. It was bizarre. And I broke a Canadian record and actually they, they so it was so unbelievable. They actually had to, to do the race again the next day because they actually didn't believe the clocks. And I did it again. And, um, and I kind of got this, um, idea, which, and I can almost divide the world into two different types of people. And because of that, um, whenever I do something, I do it 100%. And, and I never give up and I go right to the nth degree. And sometimes I do fail, but I, I got to the point where I went, I never want to be on my deathbed thinking about something great that could have happened that I only gave 70% because I just didn't want to risk it all. And um, of course, when you're younger, you can risk more. When you're older, maybe you can't risk as much. And I can see now where my, uh, my risk profile is changing because I don't need to make an extra dollar. There's not, nothing for me to gain. And it's actually for me to pass it on to my children. You know, just just on the the other side of that, the number of people that I see in life that really hold so much back, and I go, "Why are you holding something back? It doesn't make any sense." And I, and but I, it must be some kind of condition or something that occurred to them where they were young, where they gave it all and failed so miserably, they promised themselves they would never do that again. It's interesting that lesson, right? Of we all fail and, and we take different things from it of I'll never do that again versus well, I got to make sure to do, I got to make sure to do it different next time I try. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think within that is the, there's, for most people I find it's either an on or off switch. It's either yes, I will do it or no, I won't do it. And I think inside of like creativity of, a, of an entrepreneur or I think of somebody who's been raised inside of a family where possibility is everything, the, the fun part of coming up with four or five different options for everything that, that can possibly occur, maybe even 10, and getting with a group of people who, um, you know, six or seven people and running the idea by them and seeing what comes up, you know, from their experience and their background, it's, I'm always stunned what comes up. I wish I would have asked for help from people earlier in life. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking, you know, listening to your book, watching your interviews, um, just kind of watching from afar uh, over the years as I see you in the business press and things like this. Um, 
I would love to ask you some questions. You know, there's so many people who, uh, like you say, they, they hold back. And then when someone else wants to try full swing, they want to hold them back and save them from themselves, you know, things like this. And, yeah. you know, like, look at when you're a kid, if you say you want to be an astronaut or an actor or whatever, everybody's so happy. And then as soon as you become an adult, they tell you, be realistic, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, like, let's say there's somebody listening today who says, like, I genuinely want to build a, bil a billion dollar plus company or, you know, like, I think the last valuation I saw for Lululemon was like 41 billion or something, right? Um, and, you know, either people tell them be realistic or they just roll their eyes or, you know, and it could feel lonely to like, no, what if I really want to do this? Like I want a marathon. I want to do something hard. I want to do these things. And um, I'm interested what kind of lessons you would have for founders who are, it's not just a vanity thing. Like they're genuinely trying to get to this billion dollar plus size of company. And, you know, the lessons are different. And I wonder how you would describe them. I mean, I only have my context and my frame of mind for doing it. And I'm sure there's many others. I think a person has to have a genetic, let me take it differently. There's a, there's a, the great swimmer of the United States. Um, Phelps? I, I guess, Phelps. Michael I keep Phelps. thinking Thorpe in, in Australia. You know, he had, um, he had a, his father left when he was young and I think he had the physical ability, the genetic makeup, the drive, but I think it's the difference between placing 10th in the world and placing number one is I think he was swimming and training hard because he was trying to get his father back. So he was driven by some, some kind of outside force to have him not just be, but to be great. I think another realm is probably where I come from in that I had the genetic makeup for it, but then I was, um, um, you know, with a, with a mother that was a sower and a dad that was a phys ed teacher. And I actually loved what I did and I would have done it for no money. And so my mind is thinking subconsciously about what I love 24 seven. And so consequently, I, it's almost, it would almost be impossible for me not to succeed. Just like Thor. You have another, you know, thing like Gates or let's call, you know, Bill Gates who got into high school and there's computers, you know, like at the right time in the right place with the right genetics, the right drive, the right you know, probably education and parenting type of thing. And so these are, I would have someone like really look at if they want to build a billion dollar company, A, would they do it for free because they, they would work so hard anyway? Are they really being driven by some outside forces or something that happened in childhood? They want to be a billionaire in order to compensate for something that went wrong when they were younger, or do they have the just the genetic aptitude to actually do what they're doing. Consequently, they know they're better than anyone else in the world at because they're at the right place at the right time with the right genetics. Those are only three options that I have. I think, I think where I kind of get, when I hear people that they want to become billionaires and, um, but they haven't figured out if they're willing to sacrifice their life in order to do it. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, I sacrificed like 
girls for a year and a half working on the Alaska oil pipeline, you know, like that was a sacrifice. And, but I made more money than I probably had enough at 19 as most people had when they were 40. Most people wouldn't do that sacrifice. Um, so are they willing to do that? If I kind of see something in the background of something like that, I have this idea, I want to do it. I kind of look in the background and go like, do you, do you have the motor? Do you have the motor inside of me to do it? I think those are super important questions for anybody to ask. Um, uh, so let's take it the next step. So um, let's say the hard questions are asked and it is determined. They do have the motor. They're, they're doing this for love, you know? Um, what are what are some of the zero to billion lessons you would have for that individual? Whether it's how well, to recruit great staff, how to scale yourself as a CEO and keep learning, fundraising, and anything. I think there's different stages of the business that people try to get into. I mean, for me, I'm definitely one of those people that's in a business seven years before anybody else. I, it's just my aptitude, right? I can see trends coming. I do a lot of reading like you do. I, I triangulate. I put things together. And so, um, um, you know, so basically when I get into a business, I'm already up and going when that business starts to be popular, like surf, skate, snowboarding, yoga, outdoor clothing, whatever it is. Then I see so many people kind of come in the business and they've got the billion dollar idea and they have all that, what we're, you know, the three aspects we were talking about earlier, but they're coming into the business and they're 11th or 12th person into it. Okay, that's fine. A, you know, do they have a better business model? Um, now they know that the market's good, so the market's already growing, so there's something there that's more of a for sure thing. But now they have a lot of competition. In order to come into that market, you've got to be able to leapfrog either early technology or you have to have more money to amass to put, um, um, you know, an engine together that can bypass your competitors. You know, the, the third part about it, you can come really late into a business cycle and um, like in surf, skater, snowboarding, or let's just call those three, they went from three companies to 500 companies to three companies. The three companies owned like 20, 30 brands each. So you can come in at the, just at the top of the cycle when people start, to, there's mergers and acquisitions and bankruptcies, and you can be an amalgamator. So it's really important to know what stage you're at in the market that, that you're actually going for. Boy, we could talk forever about the question, but let me stop there and try again. Oh, I think that's great. Um, you know, you're so well known for creating a culture. You know, there's, there's so many CEOs and so many corporate communications teams that claim a great culture, and yet uh, you get talked about. You get talked about behind your back about what a great culture it was. You know, it's the real deal. Um, and uh, I'm interested when you think about personal development as a CEO and continuing to you know up the skill stack so that you can be prepared for the next level of business. What kind of advice do you have? Well, I don't think there's any. Again, I don't think there's any one way of being a leader. I think this is the trap that people fall into, and. Um, a lot of times I go back to the landmark forum, which I think is, you know, the best course I ever took in leadership. And it really was, um, there's no formula, but the idea is to be in choice every minute of your leadership about what kind of leader you want to be. Because um, 
a leader can be somebody who, what does is, what is Werner say? A leader is someone who's forgotten. So, you know, you can have, you know, if, you, if you're inside of a group, um, you know, how can you get the best out of people so that almost everybody else thinks they're the, they're the hero, maybe they are the hero, or they're the thinkers, or whatever. Like a leader really has to be so egoless that they have to just see where the bottleneck is and then, and then bring, that, bring the best of people out and have them go forward. I mean, I think that's very clear from the book, uh, which is my favorite business book, The um, the Good to Great by Jim Collins, and what a level five leader is, where the where the people on the outside are saying, you know, what makes this company successful? And they're pointing to the CEO, but the CEO is pointing outside the office to his people. Um, so the, the, what I'm really getting at there is choosing in the moment what type of leader you want to be. You can be aggressive, you can be humorous, you can be in the background. I would say in a crisis situation, a leader has to take a command and control point of view and has to move quickly and fast. I'd say as the world is digitized in the last 20 years, there's definitely been a more a movement to, I'd say, more of a command and control type of thing and, and um, leading people stronger than they were in the uh, 80s and 90s, where it was kind of bringing people along and having it come from the bottom up. I think we're, we're moving way too quickly now, which is also why I think that China is going to dominate the world over everybody else, because I think the Politburo and the way their governing structure works allows them to move really, really quickly. So I want to talk about a couple of things you brought up there. Um, be, you know, becoming more egoless as a leader and also inviting the best out of our people. Um, can you talk about this idea of like, you talked about earlier, like actually having the self-belief, I can be the best at this. I've got something here, you know, that motor that you talked about. And, and then also the need to rein that in and to not become an egomaniac. And can you talk about navigating that, like the, the self-confidence and the egolessness? Well, I don't think the self-confidence ever has to go away. Something that I have learned in life, and I've read many books about it, and it, it's the weirdest thing. Actually, the more a person knows about the business they're in, the more insecure they are about it, because it's almost the more I know, the more I know I don't know. And this is where... You know, board of directors and people who come in who have been successful in other businesses but don't really know the 1,000 nuances of the businesses, the business that they're being a director of, actually can end up taking more control because the, because the founder owner is is actually hungry for some, you know, to bounce ideas off of and is maybe is willing to take a back, a back seat because they just feel so, so insecure because they do know how the multiple different ways things can actually turn out. Now I've gone totally sideways on your question. No, no, I I really appreciate that. Um, When you talk about, or when you think about a CEO who's saying, oh, I think I could, I think I could work on becoming more egoless. Do you have any ideas? Uh Do you have any thoughts of how we could work on ourselves? Well, um, I, I, you know, so much comes back to um, Marcus Aurelius, you know, back in the day and his quotes and if I look over self-development over time, many people have kind of come through and kind of developed things that are on and off of Marcus Aurelius. You probably had Dale Carnegie come in the early 1900s, you know, about how to win flames, friends, and influence people. 
And then <clears throat> almost everybody else seems to have like taken a combination of everybody else's ideas and put them together into one to kind of create a new philosophy. And that can come from Brian Tracy's psychology of achievement to um, the seven habits of highly effective people, probably Tony Robbins from what he's doing and definitely Werner Erhard from um, originally the S program and then the, the, the um, uh, landmark form. But I would say from an ego point of view um, that it, 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 it doesn't serve a leader um, to be it's all about me. I think maybe we see it in the movies. And I see things in the movies. And I see, see things in Hollywood. And I kind of go, yeah, you know, like a, you can act like that in the movie, but you couldn't possibly run your business like that. Nobody would work for you. You know, you're not getting the best out of people with that type of personality. So, you know, it's, um, is it more important to be right or is it more important to win? It's another way of saying that. And it's more important to win, I would say. So I, I like to put, uh, I like to give without expectation. I like to put my people first. I don't have to win. Um, it doesn't have to be about me. Um, and I think that my job in life, and it comes from that level five leader from good to great again, is to train and develop people to be better than I am under me. Actually, it makes my job easier. Well, uh, I want to talk about this. And maybe I'll add one more element to it. When you think about recruiting great people, getting them to choose you, and then helping to develop them, do you have any advice? You know, as, as founders and entrepreneurs, we're constantly told that you know, the farther you go up in, in uh, scaling your business, the more critical having the best people, like it just, that never goes away. Like you always need to be bringing in the best people. Um, can you yeah. talk about what was effective for you growing, you know, such successful business? Well, it, it's, it's worked for me and not worked for me. I mean, I really, inside of Brian Tracy's Psychology of Achievement, he talks about the law of attraction. So, you know, that's a book about a lot of the laws of life, like the laws of gravity and science. And the law of attraction says you attract into the world the type of person that you are. So I would say that um, the easiest way to recruit is to be, you know, the type of person that you would want your employee to be. And so that's the first thing. Um, and then I think it's really easy at that, at that initial stage, maybe for the first... Um, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of a business. You can like work with a lot of 20 and 30 year olds and you can kind of get them up and going. Um, and then comes this stage. And I think here's the interesting thing is that the stage is the business is growing exponentially. My people have never like run a global business. My people have never done this. They've never done that. I do know I can teach them, but they're going to be doing, making a lot of mistakes on the way. Or... Do I go out to a bigger company and find an executive that's been through this before and train and develop them to, um, um, you know, to take over the job? My, my, my feeling now is to culture is number one. People that are driven and love the business is number two. And then if they don't have the experience, I would make them like, the leader of the group, like let's call it uh, um, logistics or design or accounting, whatever it is, 
And then I would hire the more experienced people from the outside to come in and work under them, but pay the person under them more money so that they don't, so their ego is in place, not to know that they didn't get the, the top job and let them know why I'm doing it that way. That's how do you do it over again? That's how I would do it. And the point there is to have this advisor for this person to grow into the role. Right, right. Because as the company gets bigger, the leader, or let's call it me, can't be everywhere all the time. So I need, you know, and I, you know, you just need the the people that have made the mistakes before. Hopefully, these what I'd call almost COOs compared to CEOs are more experienced. They're there, they can, you know, like they're the conciliari and Godfather or something like that. You know that. You know, that quiet voice that says, no, you know, I've made that mistake before. You might think about doing it this way and, you know, and 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 develop that person with the culture and the drive and the love, the initial love for the business. You want them eventually to be the CEOs. Yeah, that's great news. Um, I want to shift gears uh, and I want to talk about one of the other critical things that I hear over and over from the, the, the folks I am lucky enough to get on the show that have grown, you know, zero to a billion or more. Um, I am fascinated by the way your mind works in continually crafting something that people want. You know, like, I, I'm sure a lot of people don't know about your stories of like, being in the swimming business and uh, <laughs> speedos were only solid colors in Canada, and you got your mom to get you some striped ones from Texas and sold it or, or inventing yeah. barbecue shorts when that wasn't a thing. And uh, like West Beach, you know, so Texting a couple of buddies today, uh, bragging that I was getting the founder of West Beach on the show. You know, my my friend Drew Canyo wrote like he says that's sick. Uh, they're the coolest company. I had a half, I had a tan and green half zip jacket with a kangaroo pouch. That was my favorite thing to ride in. It was the most comfortable. Yeah. Even now, when I see somebody in a, in something West Beach, I think that person was a ripper. Or like my mm -hmm. buddy Trent Williams was. You know, we we're talking about you know my favorite Canadian snowboarder of all time, Devin Walsh. And talking about Kevin oh, Young yeah. and just what great writers you had. And he's like, I still have my West Beach too. It's my favorite. He's like, you know, mm -hmm. the best snowboard competitions in the world when we were growing up was the U.S. Open and the West Beach Classic. And, I know. you know, yeah. we have all these snowboard videos of like snowboarders dressed up like cheerleaders out there in the middle of the quarter pipe. And Hard to know. <laughs> we, we, you know, like we grew up on that. Like we thought you guys were like, we thought you guys had invented cool. Okay. And so, um, you know, I've heard you talk about like all the advantages of vertical and like at Lululemon, like the difference between lycra and polyester and why you're able to create so much of a better product by controlling everything along the way. Um, can you talk about advice you'd have for founders, regardless of the industry, of, of continually, continually improving the product to, to create the desirability from the masses and, and just your mindset around creativity and perception of the market and and magnetism. Well, if we're talking creativity, one of the things I love to do is I'd go into my business every day and I'd say to myself, if I had to compete against myself today, what would I do? So this is, this really gets me out of things that are making money, but aren't the future. And it's, it's, I find this, um, in big corporations is almost impossible to do because companies don't want to get rid of existing um, revenue streams, they're not really thinking about how, again, how quickly the world is, is going and moving. And if I would have, um, 
I think if, uh, again, I think back in the 80s and 90s, or maybe even like sooner than that, if, um, let's say called the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the world was very linear. So, uh, you know, things move slowly and you'd kind of like, you'd be in one business and then you'd slowly pivot and you'd kind of move into another at the time and you had lots of time to overlap. When I was doing the surf skate snowboarding business, it was changed. That was changing every like six, six years, five years. And basically while one was still making a lot of money, you had to be actually making, starting the other business as you were doing that, which of course sucked up a lot of, a lot of operating costs in SGNA. But if you didn't do it, you were going to, you know, you were out of business, so to speak. And there are many, many surf skate snowboard companies that died because they, you know, they didn't change. Um, so that's one part of creativity. Um, the second part is is thinking about actual product itself. And I can, I don't know how other people do it. I imagine if I was in the tech business and I'm on the computer every day and I'm looking at how I'm, I'm I've got a business, but I'm using Word or I'm using you know Slack or I'm using something every day. I would have lots of ideas about how I wanted to change it. But if I was working. Uh, for Microsoft to be going, and I'm doing my normal business, I go, God, this just doesn't work. i got to fix this. And as an athlete in surf skate, snowboarding, and then yoga, and now it's, I'm in the outerwear business, as uh, maybe you know, it's like I'm thinking all the time like as an athlete. Like, and what, and everything drives me crazy. I'm the most finicky guy in the world, and I often say that if I had my way, I'd be wearing a Speedo everywhere I went because, you know, Clothing bothers me, like like a thread out of place, a label that sticks into my neck, uh, arm sleeves that aren't long enough, you know, like anything that doesn't have stretch in it is impossible for me. So I'm, I look at a product and I think about it like an athlete. And I go, I put my hands in my pockets. Is it, are the pockets angled the way I want? Where do I put my keys? Where do I put my, my it's not a matter of where do I put my cell phone? Can I get at it at two rings? Now I'm wearing, I've got ear pods everywhere I go. Cause like you, I listen everywhere. So I've got to have a pocket for that. I, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. So I need lip balm because my lips are permanently chapped, you know, like all these, all these things. And, and so I kind of think of myself as kind of like, like one big backpack, but I want to be organized and I want my clothing to organize for me. So, um, and then I'm thinking about rashing and, um, I, I think a lot about, but each and every sport and how for a marathon runner who's 110 pounds and wiry versus a, you know, a snowboarder who's in half pipe, who's probably short, but stocky and muscular, like a gymnast vis-a-vis, you know, your high jumper. So all these things are, you know, it takes different clothing and different fit and different, um, uh, low rise versus high rise. There's all sorts of, there's, one billion things you can do to make it perfect for an athlete and probably so pe- few people know how much thinking actually goes into it. You know, it sounds so simple. And yet I think probably everybody listening can can think, you know what, I could put myself even more in my customer's shoe. I could work harder at like empathetically living their life and and doing that more. It's such great advice. Well, I think if you want to be competitive, I don't see, you know, and that's part of the creativity where where do people get their creativity from? You know, I, I, if I wasn't an actual customer myself, I don't know if I would be on top of my game. It'd be, it'd be hard to fake being an athlete. And, I, you know, you see a lot in design and you see it a lot in athletic companies where they hire some 
I don't know, like out, out of the out of the park, you know, designer that's never walked across the street in his or her life and totally unathletic and just, you know, like always made me a little bit sick. And of course it comes out in the product. So I think about this, like, you know, the Athletica kind of that, that Lululemon wave that essentially you started becomes a $400 billion industry. Nowadays, um, over where you got Arcteryx and Solomon and all these great businesses and you know, like for us snowboarders in Utah, like Bodie Merrill and some of those guys riding for you, we obviously think highly of, right? Um, yeah, great. I, I'm interested, um, when you think about all this evolution over your career, um, what's, what's different when it comes to operating like multi-billion dollar organizations? What, what advice would you have for folks or anything that people could do to prepare themselves as they get from the billion thinking like, okay, getting... Here's how it changes from billion to multi-billion. I, I tried to do it at Lululemon and it didn't work. And I think it's because I became such um, um, enemies kind of with the board of directors. You know, they, they were more for quarterly earnings and I was always looking 100 years out. So those two things never, never worked. Um, but um, one thing that I did is I put in something called the operating principles. And... If you've ever read the book, um, The E-Myth, like, it's a phenomenal book. And it's so simple. And I read it about maybe four months before I started Lululemon. I went, oh, I just have to set up my business like it's a franchise. Like, I'm going to, like, franchise it. So what are all the processes and operations and how do I document them? So my one of my things, I'd, so I'd have an operating principle would be, I'm going to pay every supplier in seven days, like not 30, not 60, but I'm going to be the best payer in the whole business. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. And then I would go next to it. I'd go, why? Well, because the best payer gets the, the, num the best technology, gets the best sewers, gets the uh, first delivery, um, you know, all these things that accrue out of it that an accountant can't like quantify, but I know makes way, way, way more money than trying to pay somebody in 30 or 60 days trying to put that money in the bank. So um, I have about 400 of those about how to run a vertical apparel business. And that's, I left that at Lululemon and then they basically ignored it. So, which I find very fascinating. But now I'm taking those into my other, what have we got? three $1 billion companies between Wilson Sports, Arcteryx, and Solomon, and then a bunch of ones that aren't, aren't as big. But now my job is to bring those in because they were basically male-driven engineering wholesale, and my job is to bring in um, spring and summer goods, knowing that women buy 70% of all athletic apparel and... Um, uh, and then bringing and then bringing in direct to consumer rather than wholesale. You know, I, I've heard you talk about how, um, you know, Bill Gates has said the same thing. Of he kind of sometimes he wishes he hadn't sold so much because he could have done so much more and acted faster um, with control instead of having that culture clash of of the people who just want to maintain the short term thinkers. Um, what advice would you have for those like those real visionary folks who've got the motor and and there are these other people saying, you know, oh, quit living so far in the future. Uh, 
how could you, what would you tell them to have some more self-confidence of like, like I think about the name of, of Hold It All, right? And it makes me think about that a little bit. I'll let you take that any way direction you want. Well, I got to talk to Bill Gates, I don't know, I guess a couple of years ago. And um, that's the one thing that really, really hit me in it. He said that my one big mistake in life was taking Microsoft public, which I found interesting. His father was a lawyer and under, corporate lawyer and understood this stuff, you know. And my dad was a phys ed teacher, knew nothing about this stuff, and we still both made the same mistake. You know, like, he didn't have to go public. Um, you know, I didn't, I, it was, Lou Lemon was complete cash cow, and I didn't either. And uh, so um, I probably got lost on your question, but, I mean, when he said that to me, it, it almost made me, it made me a little bit ill. Um because, because you do lose control. You lose control of the culture, the CEO, the direction. People do. I mean, if you just got to imagine when you have a board of directors in a public company, you have to fill a compensation committee, an audit committee, and a governance committee. Who are the types of people that want to be on committees? Well, they're generally like... Um, Secure, safe lifeguards. They're lifeguards at the swimming pool. And they're not, they're more concerned with saving the money the company has rather than using the money to do something with it. It's their genetic makeup. So, where do like creative people fit into this? Well, they don't. Um, how many creative people can you have on a board? One, creative people don't even want to be on a board. Well, that's your first problem. The second problem is uh, is that if, if you can't have more than nine people on a board, or or you know, a conversation just goes sideways and nothing ever gets done, and nobody really gets to say anything. So it's kind of like the way that the public system is set up in in the in in North America is is meant for mediocrity. It's meant to actually fail in the long run, and wait for like an Elon Musk or somebody to come along and and disrupt it. <laughs> I love getting someone of your level to get to say that. It, it makes so much sense. I think one of my favorite stories from your family, and I'd love if you could elaborate on this. I believe it was your grandpa had a real business problem, maybe a bankruptcy. I can't even remember. And you said he said something like, well, that's the advantage of being an American. You can start over. <laughs> or uh, maybe I'm misquoting well, that. Well, that's what I kind of came up with was... Um, um, of course, everyone's got a dog, um, is they were risk takers. They were American risk takers, and they went right to the top, you know, like had a wonderful life, and then had all their eggs in one basket, and sure enough, they got into the first mutual fund computer scam in California in, in history, lost it all, moved from their nice place in San Diego to a trailer park in, outside of San Diego where their taxes were low, land taxes were low, and had to start all over again. But, you know, it was, it's just a, such a different culture clash, the Americans versus Canadians. Like, Canadians would never take those risks on any kind of level in the first place. But, again, Canadians then don't get to know what great is. Where Americans get to know what great is because they know how far down you can also go. And, and it's kind of like um, 
you don't know black unless you know white. You don't know peace unless you know war. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the American culture. There's nothing wrong with the security of the Canadian culture. But I find that at the end of the day on my deathbed, I would have wanted, and thank God I do have access to knowing, well, what did great look like? That's, that's where I come from on that. Maybe, maybe a final question here then is, I, I love the way that you talk about responsibility and integrity. And uh, you've talked a lot about the book Atlas Shrugged and the impact it had on you. Can you maybe talk about those three things here as we close down? Sure. Uh, I mean, I didn't know, and I had very little integrity when I first read the Atlas, Atlas Shrugged. I was 19 years old and just thought it was a phenomenal book. You know, I, I had no idea it had any, I didn't know if it was a good book, a bad book. I did, it just somehow landed on my lap. And to be 19 and read about a female antagonist who is um, trying to build a business, but is being kind of thwarted by um, corruption, uh, you know, government handouts, um, um, basically the, the, the competitive landscape isn't fair because people are using either the government or, or other kind of ways in order to, nefarious ways in order to compete. Where she, on the other hand, is falling in love with a, a guy who's, you know, running a steel mill, who has integrity, runs a great operation, loves his people. Um, she's running a railroad and needs his steel, so to speak, to kind of run the railroad. And, they're, and it's just at the end of the day, they're finding that they can't, they can't compete. You know, what is it? He who, he who um, makes the rules gets the gold. So in other words, if you're the government, you know, you get the gold, right? It's not he, it's not he who has the gold makes the rules. So basically it, it really taught me that I can't, I can't listen to people that will tell me I can't do things who are trying to bring me down, who are trying to bring me into mediocrity. One of the things I'm sorry, I'm going to go sideways on this. I really I really do get where nature wants us all to be pretty mediocre. And I think, you know, it's this thing that you, you bring down the tall poppies and you bring the underdog up because then there ends up being more people in the middle to reproduce with. Because our second instinct is to reproduce after survival. And I think we're kind of naturally made to do that. Nature only wants us to reproduce. It doesn't care whether we have a great life or not. It's fascinating when you look at us just like pure animals. So inside of, inside of the Atlas Shrug then was the first learnings about integrity and learning that, you know, what comes out of my mouth and what I say out of my mouth is that I have to do what comes out of my mouth. And if I don't do what comes out of my mouth, then there are consequences and there are veils of, of uh, you know, uh, hiding. Oh, I, uh, I don't have to do that. I don't have to tell the truth this time, or I can tell a little white lie, or I can show Five minutes later, I can do, it won't matter, but it all matters. And um, so really having that comment that I say about everyone feels they have integrity, but everyone in the world has a different definition of integrity. Therefore, in a company, there is no integrity because everyone's going to pull their own definition of it to, to say, oh, I was right. So, you know, when it comes down to of values or linguistic abstractions in companies, I think it's inherent upon the leader 
to have these values or these words, terms, definitions, and really define them. So for me, integrity would be, um, I do what I say I will do when I will do it in the expected way. And if I can't do it, then I've got to clean up the mess it's caused by me not doing it. And I've got to re-promise new conditions and new buy-win dates for completing it. That's the definition of it. For quality, it's my customer wants to buy the product again. That's a simple one. But people just kind of put out these like values, like words, and everyone's just ignoring them now and they don't mean anything. I'd say with responsibility, it's what I learned is, and then we all know it, like you hear someone complain about something twice and then you never listen again, no matter how many times they're doing it. So it's a, it's a racket to actually be a constant complainer. So I, it's really interesting for me once I found myself complaining about something twice and I go, either I take action about it or I got to shut up. So I started complaining about the Lululemon board and, you know, well, I could tell that nobody was listening. So my action was to go write the book, you know, he who writes the, you know, history, you know, owns the history, you know, Hitler and every other dictator in the world has learned that through PR and propaganda through the lengths of time. Yeah. Not that I'm a dictator, not that I'm Hitler. <laughs> Let me not end on that. <laughs> no, but look at, look at Winston Churchill, you know, somebody who mm. saved us from Hitler. He, he was not shy about writing. Do you know what I mean? No. Amazing guy. Yeah. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. Um, what, what should we, what do you want to leave people with today? Oh God. Um, well, I, I'm going to go back to the book, good to great, that there is a significant difference between good and great and good definitely isn't great. And to I'd say people to look at every aspect of their life and if they're not being great at it, then just let it go, let it go. I'd say the second thing is. I don't think enough can be said about goal setting and goal setting where it's every goal is quantifiable with a buy-win date. And um, I think to listen to the hour and a half inside the psychology of achievement by Brian Tracy on goal setting is something that's uh, um, really, I've seen with maybe 40,000 people now just totally rearrange people's subconscious thinking. Now I'm going to have to go buy that book. I already bought Legacy the, about the All Blacks that you recommend. Oh, so I bought that. That's the, that's the culture of Lou Lemon. But it, but it was the, yeah, it was the New Zealand All Black rugby team. And I went, oh my God, it's the landmark. It's the goal setting. It's the putting the ego away. It's leadership. Go ahead. I could talk about it forever. Well, so that's like, I, I bought that one. It's on deck as soon as I finish your book. So now I'm going to have to add the Brian Tracy after that one. All right, great. All right. Okay. Okay, Jess. Thanks again for doing this. Yeah, it's so much fun. Okay, thanks so much.